We Welcome are, to the uh, Dogwood Podcast, a presentation uh, of Dogwood Church. As a church For family, more information, just, visit dogwood.church. Join us now as Pastor uh, Keith shares in, in today's message. We are journeying message. through and building a biography of the Lord Jesus. We are, we are going to see His teachings, uh, but we are, we are also um, taking a look at His life and uh, who He was and what He did and how He revealed Himself uh, because uh, we believe, the followers of Christ believe, that He in Him and in Jesus alone is the life that is truly life. We are going to the, the uh, four eyewitness accounts of uh, the earthly life and ministry and teaching of the Lord Jesus, uh, the Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, to put together this this biography, to look deeply again at Jesus and uh, to know Him, to seek to know Him, to draw near to Him. I'm reminded of the words that John the disciple, the writer, John the writer of the gospel penned, inspired by the Holy Spirit in in, uh, chapter 20, verse 31. He says, here's why I'm writing this. Here's why God the Holy Spirit uh, put these uh, words in my mind and, and through my fingertips onto uh, paper. Here's the reason. These, verse 31, chapter 20, these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in His name. Uh, Not just that you believe the intellectual facts, but that you come to know uh, and and that you place your active trust, your, your deep confidence for your life in eternity into Christ as the Messiah, the Christ, God come in the flesh, uh, the Son of God, the unique Son of God, not in the sense that we sang just now about we are the sons and daughters of God, we're the children of God. Jesus is declared to be the unique Son of God, the one and only Son of God, God showing up in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity. And uh, that not only that we believe that He is who He said He is, but that we have life, the life that is truly life, abundant life here, eternal life here. The eternal life means not only quantity of life, life here and hereafter, but it speaks of a quality of life. Life as it was intended. We think it's the life you've been looking for. The way to find that is to get to know and follow uh, Jesus. So we are walking through His life so that you can get to know Him. Now, I want you to get to know Him because I believe if you know Him, you'll believe in Him. The more you get to know Him, the more you put aside the, your misconceptions, maybe the wrong things that you have been taught or told about Jesus in your background, that if you... Uh, Uh, leave those caricatures behind and get to know Him as He really is, who He really is, the real Jesus, that you're going to find it easy to believe in Him. That's what His disciples did. As As He revealed more and more progressively during His time on earth His true nature, they believed. They believed and believed more and believed more and believed clearer uh, and and followed Him. Uh, And I think you'll do the same. I think you'll find it easy to love Jesus because the better you get to know Him as He really is, you'll find that He's the most lovable person in the universe. And when you get to know Him, 
you can't help but love Him. I think He's the God you've been looking for. I think He's the God you've been looking for. And we're going to find uh, a little bit more about Him in this God of the Bible uh, today. As I thought about these things, I, I was reminded that our church, uh, we exist to help people who don't know Him come to know Him. We, want, we believe that people who don't believe in Jesus are missing the primary reason they were created. We don't want people to miss out here and hereafter. And so um, we pray for people. By the way, last week you turned in cards of people who need Jesus and live in our area that you're going to be praying for to come to faith in Christ and get connected meaningfully uh, in His church in the 2016 year. We totaled those up. We are praying for as a church that we know of 3,667 people in our community who need Jesus to come to faith in 2016. We need a bigger building. And so or more services or something. So, so, uh, so therefore we open the Bible to help people know who He is. And those of us who know Him, the more we learn about Him, the deeper in love we are with Him, and the more we grasp uh, the love that He has for us exhibited in the gospel, and our faith grows, and uh, we are shaped into His image. As I thought about these things, uh, I was reminded of a story in the gospel of John, chapter 2. Take your Bibles, digital or hard copy, John chapter 2, and we find there uh, Jesus and the few disciples that He had at the moment attending a wedding. Now remember, Jesus had been pointed out publicly by John the Baptist down by Bethany, down near Jericho, in the wilderness along the Jordan River where John the Baptist had been preaching that the kingdom of God was just about to bust through, that the Messiah was just about to come and people needed to repent and be ready to respond to the Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus, as He entered His 30th year on the planet, went to that place and John pointed him out. He said, look, here's the one I've been talking about all these years. Here's the one we've been looking for all of these centuries. It is Jesus. He is, they called him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the, he is the Christ. Well, the next day he did the same thing again and he did it to a couple of his disciples, Andrew and a disciple that was not named in, in the scripture here. And Andrew and this other disciple of John, the Baptist, followed Jesus, spent time with Him, became followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus. Andrew found his brother Simon Peter, brought him to Jesus. Simon Peter became a follower of Jesus. The very next day, Jesus had decided to go from Bethany down near Jericho make the couple of day, at least two day journey to Galilee back to his home region. But before he did, he found Philip who lived in the same community with Andrew and Simon and he called Philip himself. Philip became a follower of Jesus. And then Philip went to Nathaniel, his buddy, and said, we found the Messiah, we found the Christ. And Nathaniel came to follow Jesus. Now Nathaniel was from a little bitty town just a few miles north of Nazareth called Cana. Doesn't exist anymore. Archaeologists are really uncertain exactly where it was. Uh, some say about four miles north of Nazareth. Some say about eight, nine miles north of Nazareth. But right up there, it'd be like uh, uh, just leaving our campus and 
traveling from Nazareth to Cana would be like leaving here, our Tyrone campus, and just traveling up to Fairburn, that close. They, they knew people. They were probably related to people. In small towns, Cana was really just a village. And so um, the third day after meeting Nathaniel, after Jesus called Philip and met Nathaniel, Jesus and those five disciples found themselves at a wedding. There was a wedding held in Cana of Galilee. A wedding. A wedding. Nothing like the weddings, the little meager weddings we pitch today. No, 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 no. Not only the ancient uh, uh, Jews, but I, uh, one of our uh, Israeli members uh, came to me after the first service and said, you described that very well. In fact, they didn't just do that then. That's exactly what happens today at a Jewish wedding in, in, uh, in, in Israel. It, it was a magnificent thing. It was the most festive celebration that any community experienced other than traveling to the big worship festivals in Jerusalem. A wedding. A wedding. You see, at a betrothal a year prior, uh, a bridegroom and a bride would pledge themselves to each other. That's when commitments were made. It was legally binding. Engagement to be married was legally binding. And the wedding happened about a year later. Now, the wedding was really something. On the day of the wedding, the first day of the wedding celebration, they lasted seven days. The wedding celebration lasted seven days. Now, I I could tell every man in here who is a father of daughters started checking his wallet. And, uh, and, but that day, in that day, the bridegroom paid for this and uh, his family. But um, uh, the day of the wedding, in the evening, the bridegroom and all of his grooms and all of the wedding party from his household traveled to the house of the bride and collected her. And then all of her wedding party entered into the streets of the village and and paraded to the home of the groom. Uh, they, they carried the, the uh, couple uh, with, a, with an, uh, an awning over them through the streets, led with lanterns, uh, bridesmaids carrying oil lamps and, and, uh, and, 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 and people carrying lighted torches, singing and clapping and rejoicing. Uh, they didn't go straight to the feast. Bill, they went, th- they just just meandered through every little alleyway and every street on the town so that the entire community could come out and congratulate the couple and celebrate with the couple. And many of them had been invited to the wedding feast. Then they would join in with the great parade, uh, the wedding celebration through the streets of the town. And then they would arrive at the bridegroom's home to the wedding feast that would begin. It would be the finest of food and as much food as you can imagine. It would be the finest of wine and wine for everyone. And it would go on for seven days. Seven days. See, in those days, uh, the bride and groom didn't go on a honeymoon. They didn't leave and go on a honeymoon. The whole community brought the honeymoon to them. To them. And uh, they were treated like kings and queens. In fact, many of them would wear uh, even uh, their finest robes, kind of like royalty. Sometimes they would wear crowns. 
And, and every, anything that the bride and the groom said went in those celebrations. Magnificent joy, magnificent joy, magnificent joy. And we find that on that third day, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was at the wedding in Cana. Uh, evidently, she had, must have known the family very well. It appears that, that she had something to do with the catering. Now, she wanted to make sure that everything was, you know, she wanted everything to go. So it appears that she had something to do with the catering of the feast. Uh, Jesus and his disciples, now not the twelve, but the five. The five, at least, were probably there at the wedding. They were invited because they, they probably knew. They, the, the, they would invite as many people from the community as they could possibly invite, as many prominent people as they could invite, rabbis, teachers. Uh, it was a big, big deal. Jesus is in the midst of this joyous celebration. Now, there's something we learn about our God called Jesus. Uh, Jesus was, was very social. He was always at celebrations. In fact, he tended to bring the joy. He was at weddings. We find him throughout his biography at weddings. We find him at dinner parties. We find him at what we call Matthew parties where Matthew, uh, who was a a dishonest businessman and had a bunch of very wealthy, uh, out-of-control, immoral uh, business person friends, he threw big parties and when he he met Jesus, he, he didn't know what to do. He threw a big party and invited, he wanted Jesus to come. He wanted everybody to meet Jesus because he was so winsome. He was so joy-filled. Now, Jesus was not giddy. Jesus was never silly. We never see him that way. But we find that he was a people magnet. People from all walks of life. Publicans and sinners, the Scriptures say, were drawn uh, to him, he celebrated with people. We we also find that he mourned with people. We see him in times of visiting people when they were sick, and uh, and and going to be at funerals when people had died. Now he he messed up every funeral he attended. You'll notice you read it. He he really train wrecked every funeral he attended. Interrupted the whole natural order of things. But but he was a he was very social. Very social. He brought the joy to the party. He, he, he is the one who says that uh, when we come into His kingdom, it is characterized primarily by joy. The joy of the Lord is my strength, the Scriptures say. The psalmist says. Uh, he brings joy. Uh, when we think of the wine at the wedding feast, the wine is symbolic in the Scriptures of, of joy. There was a rabbinical saying, the Jewish rabbis had a saying that went something like this. Uh, no wine, no joy. If there's no wine at the feast, there's no joy. It, it, not just that it was the beverage that would brighten people's hearts and a little bit of a, make them a little tipsy. It was that it, 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 it symbolized this is a time of celebration, God's blessing, God's great blessing. And Jesus was there. I've discovered that people who rightly understand Jesus and people who rightly follow Jesus become winsome, joyful people. Uh, They become, again, not giddy. Uh, You may be an extrovert, you may be an introvert. 
not change the personality God gave you, but people kind of want you to be around because you tend the joy level tends to increase a, a little bit when you enter the picture, when you enter the celebration. Now, unfortunately, uh, I've known many that their faith turned them into the cold water committee. Uh, is that you? I mean, do you get up every day with the nagging, haunting feeling that someone somewhere just might be happy? Do you? Do you? Here's what I think. I think you're wrongly understanding and wrongly following Jesus. Allison and I have a friend. If I called her name, many of you would know her. She's a prominent business leader and uh, Christian in the co community. And when we first met her, they she and her husband moved to the community. We were invited to a fellowship together in a, in a church setting. And this is one of the first uh, uh, gatherings that she and her husband had, had gathered. After the meeting was over, another leader of our congregation said, oh, did the so-and-sos get to come to the, to the gathering? Yes, yes, yes. And said, did, did she? Yes, yes. Did she have a good time? And uh, someone who was with us said, no, no. She brought the good time. And people rightly follow Jesus. Joy tends to show up in their lives and it spills out. It spills out. Well, Jesus was very social. He, he was at this wedding. His mother was at the wedding. The community's at the wedding. But all of a sudden, there's a problem. Mary, the mother of Jesus, came to Jesus and she said, they're out of wine. They are out of wine. It says, when the wine ran out, verse 3, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. They don't have any more wine. Now, we might think, well, you know, happens. No, 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 no. It's hard for us to comprehend how important this was. For you see, uh, this, was a, this was a shame culture. Now, I don't know how many anthropologists and sociologists we have in here, but I'm, I am neither nor the son of neither, neither one of those. And so I don't really understand shame cultures. I read about them. I just know they exist. But, but this ancient... Uh, Asian, Palestinian, uh, Jewish culture was a shame culture. And one of the worst things you could do would be to bring shame upon yourself or shame upon your, your family. It was expected in a community that when a wedding was thrown that, that the bridegroom would provide had ample provisions, all the food, all the wine needed for everybody to have all in the community to have all they wanted for all seven days. And for, for either the food or the wine to run out was a terrible social uh, embarrassment. For those of you in the deep south, my grandfather used to say it like this, it'd be as embarrassing to go into town without your teeth in. I mean, we're way worse than that. You know, way worse than, way worse than that. You think of the most embarrassing social situation, uh, it, it, it would be similar uh, to this. Not only was it a social embarrassment, there were legal implications here. There were laws on the books in that culture uh, that required the groom to make ample provision at the wedding. It was expected by those attending the wedding. And if, and if it didn't happen, they actually had grounds to sue the bridegroom. It was bad all the way around. 
all of a sudden, in the midst of this great celebration, there was a problem. Mary saw the wine is running out. And so she went to Jesus and told Him. She went to Jesus and told Him. Evidently, she was expecting Jesus to be able to do something uh, about this. Now, do you think that Jesus was that she was expecting Jesus to perform a miracle here? Do you think think that? How many say yes? Let me say no. How many don't like to raise your hand in crowds? You chickens, you chickens. I saw you. I saw you. Well, hey, those of you who jumped right in and said, "I think she was expecting it." You're wrong, but way to go for your enthusiasm. No, no, she didn't. Mary, think about it. Mary had never seen Jesus perform a miracle. He'd never performed one. So how do you know that? Well, this says that it was the, in verse 11, that this was the first one he'd ever performed. First one. There are legends that talk about Jesus performing miracles as a child, turning clay birds into real birds. No, 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 they're not. They're not. It's not true. The Word of God says this is the very first one. So she, she however, had lived with Jesus. She remembered the angel 30 years and nine months at least earlier who came and announced to her that she was going to conceive miraculously and bear a son and his name would be called Jesus and he would save his people from the sins. He would be the Messiah. And she remembered all of the supernatural activity of God around his his, his birth. She knew that he had lived... With her, his father, Joseph, we believe, had been dead for years. He had cared for her. He was compassionate. So she thought, he's, he's the most responsible person in this building. Uh, they're, they're, they're out of wine. They're out of wine. Well, he responded with the strangest statement. Listen to what he said. What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Did it make you feel like, <laughs> did Jesus say that to his mama? Now, Paul growing up, can you imagine going in and to your sweet mother and saying, woman, fix me some breakfast. No, 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 no. It seems so uh, 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 rude and out of character for us in our culture. I don't have time to explain all this. In fact, I don't know that I can adequately explain all of it. But the phrase that is translated, what has this concern of yours to do with me, is an, is an ancient Jewish idiom that is very difficult to translate and understand 2,000 years later in a Western culture in another part of the world. There you go. So what does it mean? Not sure exactly but we do know this it was not it was a it was an idiom and it was not a it was not a rude statement it was not a abusive statement it was not a disrespectful statement it was based it is literally translated what to you what to me kind of what to you what to me it's kind of like now what what is what is happening here and why why am i in it could be an honest question um and for Jesus to address his mother as woman in that culture, this was a term that was not a term of disrespect. Not a term of disrespect. But, he, but that's not all he says. He says, what, concern of the, of, what has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? And then he said, 
My hour has not yet come. What? They don't have any wine. My hour has not yet come. What? What? What does that mean? What do you? What does that mean? Jesus was thirty years old. He was single. He was at a wedding feast. When you're a young adult, not yet married, and you attend a wedding, what do you tend to think about at least at some point in that wedding? What? Your own. Where's my spouse? Where's my wedding? When Jesus refers to His hour all through the Gospels, He is referring specifically to the time of His substitutionary, atoning, sacrificial death on the cross for you and for me and His resurrection from the dead when He would be glorified as Lord, God, and and Savior He's th- that's, when, when, that's what he refers to. My hour, has, the time for my complete glorification has not, has not yet come. So why was he thinking about his hour? He was thinking about what it was going, the price he was going to have to pay for his bride. See, all through the Scriptures, Jesus the Savior is described with this metaphor the relationship of Jesus to us, His church, is, is compared to that of bride, groom, and bride. Bridegroom and bride. Jesus wants to care for His church as a bridegroom cares for and loves and adores uh, His bride. He's thinking, what's it going to take for me to get my bride? The church. My hour is not that. It's going to cost. It's what it's going to cost me is my hour. It's it's what he prayed to the Lord about. Lord, is there any other way? God the Father is there any other way? Can this cup pass from me? He's thinking of all of the suffering and all of the sorrow that he must endure. To redeem his bride. You and me. And so he's in deep thought there. He turns to her and says, Now, this is a concern of yours, but I'm, I'm thinking deeply about why I came to earth, and that is to pay the price and atone for the sins of mankind and redeem humanity to me as a bride. As a, as a bride. Well, I'm sure Mary understood all that, don't you? No, it's hard for us to understand it today. But her response was almost as surprising as Jesus' response to her. She just nodded and turned to the servants and gave the best advice ever given to another human being. Do whatever He tells you. Do whatever He tells you, she says. Faith. In him, she didn't fully understand what he was thinking about, or what he was doing, or what he said, or uh, or what he might do. Uh, but that didn't keep her from having faith in him. You're not going to understand all there is to know, and, and all and about 
about Jesus. He's bigger. He's higher. His ways are higher than, than our ways. He's greater. He is God Almighty. He is majestic. He is powerful. He is God who took on flesh. He is the God-man. He is the Savior of the world. How does all of that work? You're never going to fully comprehend it, but you don't have to wait until you understand and know all things about Jesus to put your trust in Him. You've heard me say before, I don't understand all there is to know about electricity, but I'm not waiting until I find out to turn on the switch. She just had trust in Jesus and she turned to the servants and said, do whatever He tells you. Do whatever He tells you. And so they did. Now, this is not to be understood that Mary, the mother of Jesus, came to him and said, they're out of wine. And he said, I'm not going to do anything about that now. But later he changed his mind. Now, we know Jesus doesn't change his mind. And we know he's loving and gracious. He's thinking about his hour. Yet all of a sudden, in the midst of sipping sorrow at a wedding feast, he realizes that there's two disorganized young people who are celebrating their wedding and they need some help. And so he turns to the servants and he, he says, there's six stone water jars there, big ones. They held 20 to 30 gallons of water. They were there uh, for, uh, the, to provide water for Jewish purification. It was the ritual washings that, uh, that the Levitical laws of the Jewish faith required of them. It was the, um, uh, one of their practices in their Jewish faith was uh, before meals, before worship, before other times, uh, they would practice ritual washings that they would pour the water over their hands, symbolizing, I am dirty, I am sinful, I need cleansing and I cannot cleanse myself, I need God to cleanse me. Great symbol, great reminder, great spiritual habit uh, to practice. Well, these water jars were there uh, for all of that great number of Jewish people who were there at the wedding feast to, to, to do their ritual washings before the feast um, as each day proceeded. Jesus said, take those jars and fill them to the brim. The servants, okay, they don't know what's going on. He filled them to the brim and he said, uh, draw some out and take it to the chief servant. The chief servant was kind of a combination of an, of an MC and uh, head waiter. He was kind of the hired gun to make sure that the, that the wedding festival uh, went off without a hitch. He did not know where this came from. And so the servant took some that had, of the water that had been dipped out. It had turned into wine, and he tasted of it. And he said, this is, un this is unusual. He called the bridegroom, and he said, Hey, hey, everybody usually sets out the fine wine first, then after people have drunk freely, the inferior wine. But you have kept the fine wine until now. He said this was just the practice generally at a feast or a festival. Uh, the best food and the best wine would be served first, while people's palates were the most sensitive. A little later, after they'd uh, eaten and, and drunk freely, uh, they would serve uh, the less quality that they might have on hand. He said, but wait a minute, you got it all backwards. You saved the very best for last. The very best for last. Now, the bridegroom didn't know what had happened. Didn't know what had happened, but he got credit for it. 
He was empty, but he got credit for providing the greatest joy at, at the feast. Jesus did something very unusual. Now, verse 11 says this, Jesus performed his first sign in Cana of Galilee. Here's what he did. He displayed his glory and his disciples believed in him. He displayed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Jesus uh, is the founder of the most powerful movement in human history, the church. The church. Now, if you were going to launch the public phase of a movement that you wanted to impact the world, and you were going to get to choose a miracle, which one would you choose? Hey, let's heal every all sickness in the world at one time. Let's split the Red Sea once again. Uh, let's take all evil out of the world in one fell swoop. I mean, we would we would use we would want the the presentation to use all the technology. Uh, we would want to be at the best place with the best publicity, with the right people at the right time, with the biggest crowd possible and the biggest audience possible uh, to roll out and announce our candidacy for the leader of the greatest movement ever in the history of the world. That's what we would want to do. Yet this first sign, this very first ever display of His glory, meaning his real nature, his real identity, his goodness and his power as God. Just less than 10 people even knew about it. He did it in a little no-name village on the backside of a no-name region of a little bitty uh, strip of land on the other side of the world at a wedding of probably a relatively poor uh, couple and only his disciples and only the servants and maybe his mama knew he'd done it. But he displayed his glory. He, he, he peeled back for those few people, the servants and his disciples, just a little bit of who I am. Well, who was he? Showed that he was God over, he had power over creation, over the laws of nature. He exerted power over Nature. Who has power over creation? I mean, there's, who in the world has power over creation? The Creator, right? The, the Creator. The Creator God. And the Scriptures have told us He created all things. By Him all things were created. He's the Creator. He, he, he showed them, just that little handful, five disciples, a few couple of servants, I, I, I am the Creator... It's me. It's me. I have power over nature. Not, so he showed that he is so big. He is so majestic. He is all-powerful and all-knowing. He is so powerful and so big and so good that he performed his first sign to help out two disorganized young people from being embarrassed at their wedding. Some of you think God does not know your name. See, yeah, I hear the songs and I know what you say, but how could God know who I am among the billions of people? Some of you know Him, but you say, and I'm, this is a frequent conversation, you say, 
I don't, you know, I don't bring little things to God that, you know, because he's got like ISIS to take care of. But, you know, my little hiccup over here, I, I don't take those. God, listen, God is so big that what matters to you matters to him. God is so powerful that what matters to you matters to him. God is so magnificent. Jesus is so magnificent that what matters to you matters to Him. If you're here and you're a you're a, a, a nine-year-old kid and you've had a little relational fender bender with your buddy next door and y'all aren't getting along and you don't know what to do about it, uh, listen, talk to, take that to Jesus because you might think, well, it's just a little thing. I mean, the whole universe He's running. Yeah, but see, what He's so big and so powerful that He cares about your relationship with your buddy. Because it matters to you. And do you know what matters to you matters to Him. You know why? Because you matter to Him. You matter to Him. The Scriptures say that the very hairs on your head are numbered and He knows how many. Some of us are causing Him less work than, than we used to. But uh, he, he knows, uh, the Bible, he, Jesus said, uh, He knows when a sparrow falls. The birds of the field, he feeds them. And he, he says, aren't you more important than birds? Yes, you are. Yes, you are. So bring the little things. The God of the Bible, our Lord and Savior Jesus, is the God who cares about you so much that the little things in your life matter. He showed himself to be such to his disciples, and they believed in him. Even more, I think you could too. I think you can too because I think that's the kind of God you've been looking for. Pray with me. And so if you've never trusted in Him, tell Him, Lord, I know now you know me, you know my name, and I matter to you. I confess to you my sinful life, my sins, my self-centeredness, my self-righteousness, my living as if I had no need of you, and I turn from it and place my trust in you. I believe in you. I have seen you now, and I believe in you. I commit myself, my sin, my life, and my eternity into your hands. Forgive my sin. Cleanse me. Make me your child. Give me your gift of eternal and abundant life. To the best of my understanding, I give myself to you. And others of you, you've got these things you consider small. They're not small to Jesus. Bring them to Him. Tell Him about what's on your mind, what's in your heart, the struggles, the pain, the irritations, the hopes, the dreams. Hold nothing back from Him because if it matters to you, it matters to Jesus because you matter to Jesus. Lord, thank You. Thank You that You're a heavenly Father and You are a good one. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dogwood Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the message. For more information and other sermons, visit dogwood.church. If you'd like to give to Dogwood Church, you can use your smartphone and text keyword dogwood to 779-77 or click the Give link online. 
You can now download the Dogwood Church app for Apple and Android devices for podcast, video, and more.